0: This is the Disciple Makers podcast by Discipleship.org. This is season seven, and every week during this season, we'll bring you content about making disciples. Discipleship.org brings together like-minded organizations who are focused on making disciples. Our goal is to help you become a Jesus-style disciple maker, and this podcast aims at doing just that. Before we get into today's session, I want you to know about an ebook called Multiplying Disciples by Winfield Bevins, which Discipleship.org released in partnership with Exponential. Multiplying Disciples draws wisdom from church history by looking at several important disciple making movements the Celtic movement, the Moravian movement, and the Methodist movement. These movements offer vital contributions to the church that can help you. Rediscover the power of making and multiplying disciples of Jesus Christ in the 21st century. Author Winfield Bevins is the director of church planting at Asbury Theological Seminary. Download his ebook "Multiply Disciples" at discipleship.org/ebooks, or click on the link of the show notes for this episode. Today's featured episode is from Exponential, and it's called "Mobilizing God's People for Disciple Making," featuring Jason Stewart and Todd Wilson.
1: All right. My name's Todd Wilson. I'm uh, founder of Exponential and uh, co-founder of Discipleship.org, the conference we're at here. Um, We're uh, going to talk in this session about mobilization. Um, At Exponential, we're all about uh, church multiplication. Um, Our mission, we like to say we're church multiplication activists. Um, Our mission is very razor-focused at this point. Um, 7% of U.S. churches we did a study with Lifeway earlier this year 7% of U.S. churches um, are reproducing 93% of U.S. churches don't reproduce so they're uh, either reproduced or multiplied um, our mission is to see that 7% number increase to at least 16% sociologists would tell you that uh, you've got to get to about 16% behaving a certain way for it to be the normal behavior so we would like to see uh, reproduction and multiplication become a normative measure of success in the church. So we've got to see it get to 16%. I would love to be able to shut the exponential ministry down during my lifetime because we got there. And we, li- we that's, it kind of distinguishes us from some other ministries. We literally will shut exponential down if we can get this see it to 16% at this point. Um, here's the challenge. The... Uh, All church multiplication movements uh, have their roots in disciple-making movements. And so we realized a few years ago part of why we co-founded discipleship.org was we realized we were not going to be able to accomplish our mission at Exponential if the disciple-making side of things wasn't pushing things harder. And so uh, co-founded discipleship.org, we're... Also seeing that the trend that we see happening right now, not just that we've got to get disciple-making back at the core, but uh, church in the U.S. in front of our very eyes right now is being deconstructed. And it's a—it's at an accelerating pace at this point. Um, we believe over the next decade or so, um, we're, we're going to see this acceleration of deconstruction of church, which means we're trusting that there will be a Reconstruction or rebirth in some form. And if you can use that metaphor of a house that's either burning down or being torn down, and what's left is a foundation that you then rebuild on, um, it's going to be vitally important that the foundation that gets rebuilt on is Jesus. Seems obvious, but uh, because of some of the nuances of the deconstruction right now, there's no guarantee that Jesus is actually at the core. Of the Reconstruction, so we've got to make sure Jesus is at the core, and uh, disciple making is the primary uh, focus of things. Uh, In the for those that were in the last session, um, Exponential has uh, worked for about two years, looking both internationally and in the U.S. at a framework um, for multiplication. Like, what do we see in international movements and others of what the characteristics that are present for multiplication, and A team that we had came up with like 10 factors. Um, Those 10 got reduced down to three, um, really to make it more simple. Those three dimensions are disciple-making at the core. And the key thing with disciple-making at the core is the operating system of the church right now, Um, the normative way of addition in the church is programmatic rather than through disciple-making. That programmatic addition throws everything else out of whack. It's like that little four-ounce wheel weight on the 80-pound tire on your car, that four-ounce wheel weight just gets put off a little bit and the whole tire thumps out of balance. Um, The programmatic approach that we take to addition throws the rest of the system off. And so in this session, we're not going to talk so much about the disciple-making dimension. The second dimension of multiplication is mobilization. It's assuming we're doing disciple-making, what... In, in Jesus' healthy way, what are we doing both to to get into the corners of society for disciple making, but then for channeling the the outcome of healthy disciple making into more mobilization? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So that's what we're going to press into uh, in in this session. All right. Here's what I want to um, have you think about the the church in the U.S. I, I should have mentioned this at the beginning too. We, almost everything we offer at Exponential is free, um, including over 100 ebooks. books um, The entire presentation I'm going through is in the form of a book called the Made for More Visual Guide. If you go to exponential.org forward slash ebooks, um, any of the Made for More content, but especially the Made for More Visual Guide, you're going to have everything that I'm doing here. Literally, the slides are, are in that. Um, the Made for More... Our, our theme for all of 2019, we had uh, 9 of <coughs> 10 events this year, 10, 11,000 people, um, and Made for More, this mobilizing God's people, God's way, has been our theme for the whole year. As a result, the library of free resources we've created, we have a churchwide campaign kit with sermon series, three- to seven-week sermon series, um, staff and elders, small group material through the book of Ephesians on this topic. Church-wide small group material, 30-day devotional guide, online assessment tools. Everything's free, all under the Made for More thing. Uh, hundreds of churches have done the sermon series stuff on what we're getting ready to go through. So I would just encourage you to take It's all free, so take advantage of uh, the... Exponential.org forward slash ebooks. <laughs> on our homepage, there's a link to the Made for More campaign kit, so there's probably multiple different links to get there. Uh, Actually, Jason from our team will write up a link in a while to get you right to all the, the made-for-more things. Okay. Um, the, I want you to think for a second. Um, the church in the United States is the most effective volunteer mobilizer in the history of the world. We talked in the last session. If you take all this week in a one-week snapshot, all of the volunteer hours in the United States and you add it all up, organizations number two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and ten, and you add up from organization number two to number ten all their volunteer hours, it doesn't add up to the volunteer hours of the number one organization on the list, which is the church. Nobody in the history of the world has, has mobilized more volunteer hours on a weekly basis than the U.S. church. So the question that you need to wrestle with through this session is the stewardship of that mobilization. Like, what to what end, for what gain, it, the numbers you heard in the first session, if we are the number one mobilizer by far of volunteers, why are all those numbers that you heard in the first session so bad kind of thing? So there's something off about the, the volunteer mobilization system. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to just with the person next to you, or to, I don't care if it's two people, just take two minutes with the, uh, one or two people around you, and I want you to get personal now relative to the church that you're in, whether you're leading it or you're part of it. And I want you to think for a minute. The, um, the question is um, the idea of people having a sweet spot of calling, like people are made for something. And, and so the people in the church you're in, I want you to talk for a minute about what percentage of the people who attend the church you're in right now Have discovered the unique sweet spot of their personal calling, and they're actually living into it. So they've discovered it, and they're leaning into it and living into it. Just spend about two minutes talking about that. Try to come up with what, even if it's a range, like you know whatever the range is of uh, of that. And we'll come back together in a couple minutes. All right, let's start to come back together. All right, let's hear, uh, it doesn't have to be precise numbers, but what are your ranges? Let's hear some of them. This is the percentage of people in the church you're in that have discovered their unique sweet spot and are living into it. Five to seven. percent. Five to seven. Who else? Less than ten. Less than ten. Less than five.
0: Twenty? Twenty? Maybe
1: ten to fifteen. Ten to fifteen? Around ten. Ten? Any others? Three to five. Three to Five. Okay.
0: 9.5. 9.5.
1: <laughs> I think part of what to wrestle with a little bit right now is uh, definitions matter. And so uh, when I use words like the sweet spot of their calling and leaning into their calling, um, I can almost guarantee you that if I picked 10 of you right now and took you into an isolated room and said write down what that means to you, you it, we might have 10 different definitions. Does that make sense? And, the, But I'm going to suggest to you that that's part of the problem in the church right now is that that programmatic approach to addition forces us to have a volunteerism approach, not a calling approach. God. We're much more focused on how do we fill spots than we are how do we actually find the unique God masterpiece designed for somebody on what they ought to be doing, no matter where that takes them. Does that make sense? uh, Can you repeat
0: that? Can you play that back? (laughs) Yeah. The volunteerism approach versus
1: the... Yeah, we, uh, the, the primary method of addition in the U.S. church is a programmatic mm-hmm. approach run by programs instead mm-hmm. of disciple-making. Mm-hmm. Programs don't reproduce, they consume. Mm-hmm. And so volunteerism becomes the fuel of the church. Mm-hmm. Staff are responsible for strategy and vision. Volunteers are the consumable fuel that goes into the engine to, to fire the thing. And then we wonder why people are discontented and not finding uh, finding fulfillment and things like that. So part of what I want to talk us through today is even the idea of definitions. Uh, if, if all that comes out of today is you thinking a little bit differently and, and even the importance of having your definitions in your church of things, um, that'll be a big, a big win for me. I, uh, I need to tell you a little bit about myself. I knew when I was 12 years old what I wanted to do with my life. I am one of those really weird people. I was sitting in the back of the room in seventh grade chemistry class. There were no whiteboards. There were only chalkboards at the time. And I don't even know the guy's name. He drew a picture of an atom with neutrons and protons and electrons flying around, and I was absolutely mesmerized. I went home that day, and I told my parents, I'm going to be a nuclear physicist, and my parents were like, great, and within a year of that, we were a blue-collar family. My, I had to go home and do an hour's worth of chores before I could play with my friends every day, and my dad put in this whole new hedge around the back of the yard, and he said, your job is to water that hedge for an hour before you go play with your friends. Literally the first day, I figured out how I could do this irrigation system where I could Turn on the hose, and it would all go downhill. One direction, there's a trough, and the whole. I could literally turn on the hose and go play with my friends for an hour, and come back, and it would be watered. And so, instead of my parents getting upset, they said, "You don't need to be a nuclear physicist. You need to be a nuclear engineer." So, at age thirteen, everything between age thirteen and twenty-two was in my way for getting out and making money being a nuclear engineer. And it all started with a chemistry teacher drawing a picture of of things. Now here's, if I can fast forward for you a little bit, um, I was in the nuclear navy, um, engineer, loved what I was doing, like loved what I was doing. Didn't become a Christian until I was 22. I was on a promotion track promoting way too quickly. By age 29, I was overseeing an industrial activity of about 6,000 people, um, really on a good track. And at age 32, a guy named Bob Buford had written a book called Halftime that some of you are familiar with. And that book was brand new. I'm 10 years into working. I read this book, and I don't have all Bob's money. He had a lot of money. But he was speaking my language. He's talking this success to significance, and is this what you're going to do with the rest of your life? And I'm like, that's totally me. Like, I've promoted really quickly. I'm 32. Am I, I'm looking ahead, like, is this what I'm going to do with the rest of my life? And I have known until age 32. My wife would tell you if she was here, she married me because of how confident I was in what future stuff was. So now from age 32 to 35, I'm wrestling with, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Like, it's this early, what they would call halftime, midlife crisis. I'm having a midlife crisis between 32 and 35. And um, the church that I'm now at, a guy named Brett Andrews is the lead pastor. We've, we, it, um, Brett was 22 years old at the church I became a Christian at when I was 22. And he started the conversation with me. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go plant a church planting church. You should leave the marketplace and come do church planting with me. And he was so excited about. it. He's like the Energizer Rabbit. And I'm like Brett. Like I'm an engineer. I don't want to go to Bible college. I have no interest in church. It's a dead ended job for me. I don't ever want to be a lead pastor. And you know, so. But for ten years, twenty two to thirty two, Brett's like, you need to come into ministry. You need to come into ministry. And he would say, I'm gonna start a church planting church. And I'd be like, what's that? And he'd be like. I don't know, but we're going to do it. And I'd say, well, how do you do it? He'd be like, I don't know. That's why I want you to come help figure out how we're going to, going to do it. So at age 32, I'm ready to start a company. I'm going to leave the nuclear Navy and start a company. The plans are made, pulling the string, ready to do it. And through a circumstance, a thing with the Navy, it all got put on hold. And Brett Andrews said, see, you're supposed to come into ministry. And so... Kicking and screaming after a two-year match, I went into full-time ministry, and it's really bizarre. I wanted to go start a company, and I'm literally looking at ministry as the most dead-ended thing I could possibly do. I couldn't think of something more dead-ended, honestly. And so um, went into it kicking and screaming, and immediately this entrepreneurial switch goes off in ministry. And so in my first six years of—I'm I'm an executive pastor by title— And I started a nonprofit marketing company that was doing over a million dollars a year in business after the first year, and we'd put all the money into church planting. And then we started an equipment company and then a project management company. I'm carrying six different business cards that ultimately led to Exponential. Like I can have one business card where I can do all this different playing. Now, all of that, um, the fun part of the story is Bob Buford then, whose book I had read that I had never met – I'm in Dallas, Texas, don't even know he lives there, and I run into him one day, and literally run into him, and I had been working, didn't know this, with a guy he was mentoring, and he says to me, Todd Wilson, do you know Al Weiss? And I said, yeah, I've been working with him for nine months. He's like, you gotta come in my office. I've, he just told me a week ago that I needed to meet you. Now, what are the chances of, of all of that? And here's, here's, when you go through the whole story, let me go back to a chemistry class with a chemistry teacher for a minute, all right? Um, before that, if you would have asked me what I wanted to do with my life, I wanted to be an architect. Before that day that the chemistry teacher said something. Why in the world did I want to be an architect? Because I couldn't draw. Like, I, I really couldn't draw. And so I go from being an wanting to be an architect to all of a sudden wanting to be a nuclear engineer, and here's the connection. What does an architect do? They create an image or a picture of some future possibility and they put it on paper. What happened that day with the chemistry teacher? That chemistry teacher drew a picture of something they had never seen and it mesmerized me the fact that they could draw a picture of something that they had never seen, what was happening was my core calling, my core sweet spot, has to do with helping people create images and pictures of future possibilities. It's why I have an affinity to church planting, to help people start new churches. It's it, all, all of the things tied to that. And the reason I'm giving you all this detail now is this. Um, I could, when I look back on the last 20 years, I wanted to go start a company. And I could have started a killer good company making a bunch of money. And yet, God had a sense of humor and released this entrepreneurial thing in ministry that I could have easily missed. And I fortunately had Brett Andrews and then a guy named Ron Ferguson. And ultimately, Bob Buford became a mentor to me for 14 years in this journey of realizing, man, I got to get positioned into this idea of the sweet spot of my personal calling. Okay. So here's what the trigger point for me was. Uh, When I first met that day that Bob called me into his office, he wanted me to come to work with him full-time because we were so compatible. And he said, I wouldn't go to work full-time with him. And he said, here's what I want to do. Would you come to work with me 20% of your time? And here's what his words, I want you to put yourself in my shoes right now, okay? I loved what I was doing at this point, point. and here's what Bob said. Now, imagine somebody asked you these three questions. His first thing was, I want you to work with me just 20% of your time, one day a week. But that one day a week, I want you to be 100% in your sweet spot. I don't want you to do anything that's not in your sweet spot that one day a week that you're working for me now what am, what how would your response to that be if somebody offered you that position right now one hundred percent in your sweet spot now here's what happened for me i without bursting out joyfully internally i'm like, yes, yes I don't ever have to fill out another travel reimbursement form I don't have to book my own airplane tickets like Somebody else will take care of it for me. I get to just... And then before that excitement went away, the second emotion that hit me was, ugh, how will I know? Like, now picture, I'm now eight or nine years into the calling of leaving the marketplace in the ministry. I've now started six different national things. I'm loving what I'm doing. I'm literally loving what I'm doing at this point. And now I'm thinking, how would I, like, how do I know if I'm in my sweet spot or not? That led to the immediate third emotion, which was, uh, it was a deeper ugh. It was, why in the world am I getting so excited about spending 20% of my time in my sweet spot? Why in the world? Doesn't make any sense. And so, That put me personally, I got the benefit of, not that, I got the benefit of both living the ministry thing, but having Bob Buford as a mentor now, and I'm still in this journey that I will be on until eternity. Like, I'm not going to fully understand the calling until eternity, if that makes sense. So what I want to suggest to you is I've done this exercise in different church planting networks with churches. Um, I think it's safe for us to assume, I want you to assume in the churches you're in, that I I don't think more than 1% of the people in average churches have discovered the sweet spot of their calling and are leaning into it. I want to assume that 99 out of 100 people have yet to have that, yes, this is what God made me for. Now think about, the steward, think about our stewardship of, if in our churches we're not stewarding that opportunity. Now here's what I want you to think about. I've done this exercise in men's groups before. Um, if, if you think about, let me just, I'll incriminate myself here. I have two boys, we're empty nesters now, I have two older boys. Um, one of my boys is a very, very gifted musician. He's a worship pastor now. I mean, really gifted. My other son could win on Jeopardy. My, I, I'm not saying this because he's my son. I have never in my whole life met a smarter person than my oldest son. He literally could break the records on Jeopardy. The kid knows everything. And so I've got this really brainy kid and this really artsy kid. So what did I do when they were growing up? My artsy son got voice lessons, guitar lessons, guitar lessons. Luthier training. Everything was pushed towards what he was good at. My oldest son got science fairs, science weeks. We, as parents, we directed to them to what we saw them good at. Okay. Now think about what happens when kids go off to college. What do we say to them? We're going to spend a whole lot of money to put you through college. You better know what you want to be good at because now college is going to help you. What, what's it focused on? The doing part. Now think about this. When kids are coming out of college, what's the number one question? They've gotten good at doing something or equipped to do. What's the next step? Where? Where am I going to do what I've just gotten good at? And here's what I want to suggest to you. The reason in thir- 30s, 40s, mid The reason midlife crises happens or halftime happens is we condition through the whole system people getting good at something, me getting good at being a nuclear engineer, just let the engineer part sink in. My sweet spot of calling is not to be a nuclear engineer, but I'm really good at it, and it's what I thought I wanted to do. And so we've got a system in place that parents the education system and then jobs skip the identity part of who am i really created to be we jump to the do part and then it fits into the go part so here's the question for you where's the church fit in that whole thing if if a if a person has an identity of being mine is envisaging opportunity and then there's a doing of what i do with that identity and there there's a position of where i go how does the church handle those three things identity, doing, and position for the average person in the church? Any thoughts? What's our approach? What's our strategy to that? Is there a strategy? Uh, it's kind of trial and error. Through here, didn't work. Stick them over there, or still that I would suggest that we would be way better off if that's what was happening in the average church. We don't do trial and error, I don't think. What's, it's a warm body. Here's the thing, <clears throat> Home Depot's motto, you can do it, we can help. Remember that Home Depot motto a few years ago? Mm-hmm. You can do it, we can help you with what you need to do. The church's motto is, we can do it, you can help. <laughs> we have all kinds, I mean, every, it's, it's why that programmatic need drives the volunteerism approach. So we've got to plug volunteers in where we need them. Not necessarily where they're, where they're made. I get to work with, I was going to say hundreds, thousands of business guys through my last 15, 20 years that the church doesn't know what to do with. Because, oh, I, let me tell my, my own incriminating story. When I was the executive pastor at our church, when I first came out of ministry, we had a sign ministry. We're a portable church. We've got a trailer. We've got to go around and set up all these signs. Every Sunday, set them up, tear them down. I'm leading the sign team. It's and and so who do I go after? I go after the biggest burly guys I can find in the church, like, cuz I mean it's a hard ministry to pick these signs up and put them in. So, we're in this meeting to talk about how to do the sign ministry better. And I'm just going to be gut level honest. I got a gazillion things on my plate. I got to plug all the holes. I got to make sure there's enough people as the executive pastor everywhere. And so we're doing this meeting on the signs. And I got all these volunteer guys that are like they're trying to tell me how we can do the signs all these ways better. And I'm I'm getting a little bit frustrated. And one of the guys says, "You know, there's this kind of sign that weighs way less than these. That we could get way more of them, put more of them up, go to these signs, and and I just sort of I'm thinking to myself, what qualifies this guy for you know, for, for this? To which I find out that he owns the largest sign company in our area. (laughs) Okay? So it's like, oh my goodness, not only could we do it better, here's somebody who will contribute the signs kind of thing. And it's all, if I'm really honest, my approach is we can do it. I need you to help me with my deal. As the executive pastor, every single Sunday at our church, somebody had an idea, at least one person, that would come to me to tell me, wouldn't it be cool if we did it and what was my response always? you know what if that's something you want to go do and it was it was sort of because of the reality of we've got this thing to, to operate does that make sense? Mm-hmm. so um, here's what I want you to look at can you see the board? we're gonna we're gonna bake together right now we're gonna cook and on the counter is flour, water sugar, Chocolate chips and a dash of salt. So who's the taker on what we're cooking? Chocolate Chocolate chip cookies. 99 out of 100 people would say chocolate chip cookies. Do you know how many different things you can bake with those ingredients? Way more than chocolate chip cookies. I want you to, when you leave here, I want you to keep thinking in your church, we bake chocolate chip cookies. Like, we can do it. You can help. We've decided what the strategy is, what the program is. We're going to bake chocolate chip cookies. Your flour, we need you. Your water, we need you. You can fill the thing. If we've got to, if there's one thing we've got to grab onto in this whole conversation, it's if if God's got a masterpiece recipe for a person that He's made them for something like. He's made them for something. Are they really an ingredient in our thing? Or is our role to see that he's made a masterpiece thing for them? We've got to help them bake their thing. And that's the challenge in this whole whole conversation. I'm going to walk us through definition-wise. I had the benefit. um, I never wanted to write a book. It's kind of funny. I do this on the side not for a living, I do this process called life planning. It's a two-day, very intense. Your life is a book. There's characters, sub-characters, themes, sub-themes. If you can unpack, you know, (laughs) the first 25 chapters of your life story, then the next three chapters are pretty clear. And so I've done life planning with 30 to 35 national leaders at this point. And um, I'm going to go out on a limb and say all but one or two of them. One of the exercises is an unfulfilled dream, and one or, all but one or two, the unfulfilled dream is to write a book, and so I would, and part of that is the legacy thing of people, so I would always try to talk people out of writing books. You don't need to write a book. Don't write a book, and then myself, I, I had this very strong calling. You're supposed to write a book on calling, of all things, and so Bob Buford is encouraging it, and um, it's simultaneously one of the blessings in my life and one of the curses. Um, I spent five years writing a book on calling. Um, it's called More. And uh, it was encouraged by Rick Warren and um, Bob Buford. And then four, uh, Dr. Robert Coleman, who's going to be here tomorrow. Dr. Coleman was part of the book. Dr. Coleman was part of the mentoring for the, for the book. But the reason I bring it all up is the five-year journey Here's what happened. I don't have the patience for five years. And if anyone's heard of a guy named Oz Guinness, um, Oz is one of the greatest thinkers in our time. He's probably got the best book written on calling called The Call. And so when I felt this call to write a book, and I'd never written a book, I called Oz up and I said, I need a coach to write this book. You're the best author. And he agreed to coach me on writing this book. So the very first draft of the book, I go to Oz, and I said, I need your critical feedback. And Oz uh, said, he he did the review and gave me written feedback, we sat down, and he said, I've got three non-negotiable comments for you, and then a whole bunch of little things. And the first thing he said to me was this, he said, please tell me you're not writing another self-centered, narcissistic, self-help book to help people feel better about themselves. Holy cow, Oz, I'm just feeling the call to write a book. Like, no, I don't want to do that. And he said, here's the deal. Um, if you go look at almost everything written out there on calling right now, it's all self-centered, self-help stuff. It's not rooted in the, the, this idea of each person's a masterpiece. It needs to be rooted in disciple-making. So I, five years, was really more becoming a student of really learning the calling space So I'm going to try, as we go through this slide deck, um, to not just be making stuff up, but it's coming from a position of where I've tried to learn from a bunch of different people and then just bring some language and context in, okay? I'm a little out of order. All right, this idea of sweet spot. So let's, when I say the word sweet spot, it's going to make you think something, um i'm an engineer so i'm going to give you the engineering answer to what a sweet spot is and this comes out of the bob buford's you know i want you to be hundred percent in your sweet spot um, if you look god made the universe with sweet spots there's thousands of them this room itself there's an acoustic sweet spot there's a visual sweet spot our eyeballs have sweet spots your glasses have sweet spots the eardrum has sweet spots gun scopes have sweet spots sweet spots are everywhere baseball bats golf clubs balls um, and so it begs the question what are the three common elements of all sweet spots and the answer is every sweet spot you can come up with has a design a purpose and a position design purpose position the um, Here's what's interesting. We, we talk about the fall in the garden. If, if you think about original sin and the fall in the garden, look what actually happened. Man had... His identity was secure at the time. Position was secure and purpose was secure. You could put a finger on all three of those things. All three were lost in the garden. Identity, identity with God, uh, position physically... And purpose, now you're not, not only are you just not going to serve me in the garden, now you're going to toil all the days of your life with work. So I would suggest to you that we lost the sweet spot that man originally had. And here's the reality. We won't fully recover it until we're in eternity. We're going to spend all of our years on earth wrestling with some amount of discontent because we don't have exactly that sweet spot back. But what we can do is a journey of trying to discover more and more of it. Um, it, Those three losses, I would suggest to you there's a reason that Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Life is one of the best-selling books in history. Um, Look at the three questions that those losses drive. The first one was, who am I created to be? What am I made to do? And where am I supposed to do it? That's a be question, a do question, and a go question. Who am I created to be? Where am I, what am I supposed to do? And where am I supposed to engage it? Um, we're going to just keep asking those questions. What I covered with us a little bit earlier is the system that our kids are born into and then in college, we focus on the do. What am I made to do? Do, 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 do. And then we fall into where am I going to do that? And then people have to circle back midlife. I started to tell you a lot of the men's groups I run, guys have a sense of what they're made to do, but the identity part of that raw ingredient part, most people don't have clarity on that. And the problem is it's the be that really needs to influence the do and then the go. We have a whole lot of unhealthy reasons that shape the do and the go, and we've got to get it back to the of the B part. If you can just think then, the sweet spot idea is when who I'm created to be, in my particular case, I'm created to envisage opportunity, to create images or pictures of future possibilities for people, overlaps then with what we're made to do, and then where we're supposed to do it. If we can find the synergy between the three, now just pause and think for a minute if we really were going to do what I just said in the church, we're really going to make it a point we don't want people volunteering or serving. I, this isn't what I want, but just imagine for a minute, we don't want you serving unless you're in the sweet spot of who you're created to be, what you're made to do, and where. Think what that would cause us to have to do as a church. And here's what I want to suggest to you. All of the elements of disciple-making, from intentionality to relationship to all of the. It would draw us closer to discipleship, actually. It would have to be a much more boutique, relational thing if we're going to help people discover the answer to these things. Okay, We can give them a test to see what they're good at. We can look at the inventory of the 27 volunteer needs we have right now to plug them into the go. See, I, would, I started to say this earlier, too. The church's bias is to the position in the go. the the issue of fill the slots slots are go positioning people somewhere we need somebody in children's we need somebody at the front door we at least colleges and at least parents are focusing on the do the church is skipping the be and the do and really plugging people in with uh, with the go so we have a huge opportunity but just think sweet spot is the overlap of those things um I like to define calling as God's longing for us to be in an eternal relationship with him as children. The the idea of calling, we're not really going to be fulfilled in our calling until we're in eternity, but in being his children, he calls us to honor him in all we do and wherever we go. All right, um, this comes from when when I was being coached by Oz Guinness. It's another really important thing we've got to embrace. Um, Church historians split calling into really two parts. Um, when the Bible talks about calling most of the time, it's talking about what Os Guinness would call primary calling or common calling, which is all of the, anything that's common to all Christians everywhere all the time. So let me give you an example. We're called to be disciples who make disciples wherever we are. Be, do, go. Be disciples who make disciples wherever we are. We all share that in this room. It's a common primary calling. Another way you could articulate primary, we are all in this room called to be children of God, who we are, that honor him, the doing, wherever we are. So any kind of expression of calling that unites all of us together is is common or primary calling. Secondary calling, then, is the unique calling that distinguishes us from everyone else. It would be the Ephesians 2.10, where God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he prepared in advance that we should walk in. I love the translation that's got that we should walk in, the go. It's, th- think, God could have created us for the be and the do to be a beautiful trophy for him mm-hmm. to admire, but he actually wants us to walk in the, the unique identity with unique good works and deeds that are, that are created. Um, If we look at the synergy between common calling and and secondary (coughs) calling or primary and secondary, um, I like to articulate primary in the disciple-making terms. The simplicity of we're to be disciples with a growing fullness of Jesus in us who carries that fullness to others and makes disciples of others wherever we are. Now think about this. The secondary calling then, the unique calling that God gives each of us, the reason it's called secondary is it only finds its significance in supporting the primary. Why did God give us the unique calling to participate in the mission to make disciples of other people, to increase our fullness and make disciples of others? Um, if Oz was here, when Oz was coaching me on this, what is that noise? church bells. Wow. I've never had like a warning like that before. Is that... Um, and so Oz would say if he was here, the danger we've got to look out for, it was his comment about the narcissistic self centered thing. Oz would say that the pursuit of secondary calling in the absence of primary calling is a form of idolatry. Mm-hmm. Let me say it again. Pursuing secondary calling, fulfillment in my unique Bidugo calling if it does not find significance in either either expression being disciples who make disciples where we are or being children of god who honor him wherever we are if it doesn't find its significance in that it's a form of idolatry and so that's what he meant by we've got to be careful when we're pursuing unhealthy things um the the picture of the boat here here's what i want you to think about with the picture of the boat um if it was Cotton Mather long, long time ago that came up with this metaphor, um, I want you to picture a boat that's, that's got to go <coughs> upstream, or it's got, we'll even say downstream with a river. Um, imagine for a minute what happens. Think of primary and secondary as the two oars. What happens if you don't put either oar in the water? You're not putting the primary or the secondary oar in the water. You're drifting. you drift with culture you're, you're, you're no different than culture you just drift what happens if you only put one oar in the water you're just going to go in circles both ways if you just put the primary calling oar in the water you're going to go in circles if you skip the primary and you just go after your own self-fulfillment you're going to go in circles we've got to get both, both oars in the water um we, we covered this the primary calling uh, be a disciple who makes disciples where we are um, I like to use the Ephesians 2 10 you see all three elements there um, we're God's workmanship <coughs> created in Christ Jesus there's a, there's a uniqueness there to do good works and deeds that he created in advance for us to do is the do that we should walk in as the go uh, part um, but we've got to keep the main thing the main thing um, Bob Buford kept this picture on his desk. Um, poured in, poured out, and it's basically primary, secondary calling. It's the idea that we that we're poured into with primary calling. It's us. We, we like to think it's the disciple making external, but it's the fullness of Jesus in us. We can only carry something that's in us. So the poured in is the fullness of Jesus in us. The poured out is the secondary calling is the is the way of seeing that uh, get out. So imagine if if it's true, and if, if I I'll just use all of your statistics. Nobody one person was above ten percent. The optimist in the room, or he's got a really good different church. But let's assume it's less than ten percent. Just imagine the impact of what could be happening in society if people were discovering their primary identity in Jesus, and then their secondary calling on the the sweet spot of who they're made to be and and where. Um, We have to ask the question, what's holding us back? Um, I want to suggest at the personal level, and I'll say this from my own journey, um, three things were there for me. Noise and confusion, wrong scorecards, and what I would call uh, talent-bearing. And I think there's some level of all three of these things that happen with with individuals. I'm not even at the church level now, just individually. Um, I can tell you in my case, it wasn't until I got away and got away from the noise and confusion to be able to hear God in things. Um, The biggest one for me was the scorecard part. Um, As I started wrestling with making shifts, um, the definition of insanity is to keep doing what you've always done and expect a different outcome. I am not kidding. In that two- to three-year wrestling match I had on this, I pulled out an 8.5 by 11 piece of paper. I drew a column down the middle. The left column was life as it is. The right column was life as it looked like it was going to be. And it, it, like, it was insane that I kept doing it. But what was insane was on the left side of the list, the whole page was filled. And on the right side of the list, this making a step into full-time ministry my case, made no sense at all. Like the world scorecard, I could have been locked up as being insane, okay? I still, 20 years later, don't make as much money a year as I did 20 years ago with no inflation counted in. It just, it's that stupid. Like it made no sense at all kind of thing. Um, And then talent varying is this idea, um, imagine... You know, you hear the stories of somebody hiding money in their bed. You know, every once in a while you hear that story of somebody had a million dollars in their bed and they died and it was in their bed kind of thing. So they didn't get to enjoy it. And then there's this chance that nobody else got to enjoy it if it just gets thrown away. That's how so many Christians are living. We're like, our be, do, go, unique calling is buried. It's like money hidden in a bed somewhere. And just imagine how tragic it is if people never get the chance to discover and experience that kind of thing. Um, At the church level, we've already covered on these, but the the programmatic versus disciple-making focus on addition, that's our core enemy in the church right there is the programmatic versus disciple-making. Now now think about it. If primary calling is in the context of disciple-making, and secondary calling, if it's not going to be idolatry, needs to support the primary. So both primary and secondary calling are about disciple-making, but the primary functional core purpose of the average church in America is not about disciple-making. That's what throws us off. It's uh, it's And then volunteerism versus the missionary mobilization, and we've talked about the we can do it, you can help, versus the you can do it, we can help. Um, it is a major challenge to flip that. The realities of operating the programmatic church, that we can do it, we need you as a volunteer, to flip that around is a ma- I mean, we all know, if we're in the local church, how hard it is to flip that, but it's what we've got to make. Kyle, there over. a point in history where that
0: sh- shifted? We went back to the 30s, we see a shift from boutique, disciple making, to big box, volunteerism, uh, or pro, pro, programmatic? You talk I about think about? we've definitely had cycles,
1: and I think we can definitely go back far enough where the programmatic wasn't, uh, wasn't so much the programmatic. Now, was it disciple-making, or was it was it still an evangelism focus versus a disciple-making focus? I think we've had ebbs and kinds in that thing. Um, some would argue that we have had some disciple-making <clears throat> movements in, in our history, Right now, the research that we just finished up with discipleship.org, it's a pretty gloomy picture right now on the disciple-making part in terms of we're just not seeing disciple-making movements. For for people's perspective, we just did a national study. Um, Less than 5% of U.S. churches have a disciple-making culture. Um, So 95% don't have a disciple-making culture. We want to say and believe that disciple-making is what we're about. But here's what we found in the, in the study. Um, the word discipleship has become such a catch-all for everything. Mm-hmm. The time you spend working on a sermon, the time you... I mean, there's almost no activity that doesn't get lumped into discipleship. I, if I could just... If I could be king to mandate one <coughs> change, I'd say abolish the word discipleship from your vocabulary. It's not actually a biblical word. And use Disciple-making. The action of disciple making. When we're thinking about the activities of the church, what to spend money on, what to do, um, it's it's just so easy to rationalize how everything's fitting in the discipleship category, but in reality, it's it's not disciple making. So, um, the um, how much time, Jason? Okay. The um, when we started looking at exponential heart at the equation. Um, our starting point was in John 10.10. 10. Um, we started with when Jesus says, I came that you might have life and take hold of it more abundantly. Um, when you dive in on the actual Greek there, here, here's the thing to get the head around. Um, I want you to picture in marriage, you can date somebody, you can get engaged, you can walk down the aisle, you can say your I do's, and you have a marriage. And what we've done in Christianity in the U.S. is you can say the prayer and you can have life. The, the, the sacrifice, the surrender on the life part, we, we've kind of made easy. Now, if you go back to marriage, what do you have to do to have an intimate, deep, nurturing, strong marriage? You can't just date and walk down the aisle and say your I do's. You have to take hold of the. Of a solid marriage you have to go active to have a solid marriage that's actually the distinction that's in john ten ten. i came that you might have life just accept me but what you've got to think and take hold of it more abundantly the um, the idea of taking hold of it's an active posture the idea that the average christian is going to just find their calling because they said a prayer or they attended a class or they heard a great sermon. I hate to tell you, you could have your absolute historic sermon series, like the best six sermons you've ever done in your whole career all back-to-back, and it's not going to cause the average person to take hold of the discovery of their their unique uh, calling. It's something... And so the church needs to take a posture. How are we helping people? How are we seeing people not as volunteers, but as unique missionaries uh, and masterpieces? Uh, Here's what we did, and I'm going to, because we're running out of time, all of this is in that uh, it's the made-for-more visual. If you go to that web link, um, a thing called the made-for-more visual guide, what we did, because we started with John 1010 and this idea of fullness, um, the, the actual, again, Greek in that John 10.10 is, if you can picture a continuously overflowing water fountain that's filling up a basin, the, the John 10.10, 10, the abundantly more, is this continually overflowing thing. So the idea of fullness um, is, is what's in 10.10. Uh, the book of Ephesians is where we really the whole book of ephesians is on fullness we see it in every single chapter uh, of ephesians so what we did was we went and we took the six chapters of ephesians and i'll just give you a little taste um so like in ephesians 122 and god placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church with his which is his body the fullness of him who fills everything in every way I think this is a great definition of the church, actually. The church is the body of Christ, and we have the ability to fill every nook and cranny of society with the fullness of Jesus. And if you just start thinking, what has to shift for us to go from an attractional come to us in part of society to doing church in a way that actually could carry the fullness of Jesus into every nook and cranny of society? So what we've done, and you, you can get it by going and getting the free thing. We've, um, we've taken all six chapters of Ephesians, and we've identified one truth. In this case, the truth, the fullness of Jesus can fill every corner of society through the church. And then we've, we've identified a shift that needs to happen. And we've done that um, basically for all six chapters of Ephesians, which I don't have time to go through all of them right now, but it's all available. Um, we've also got... An entire free book. It's a it's a video series for staff and elders and leaders in the church that walks through the book of Ephesians. It's a seven week study through the book of Ephesians to go through these six truths and six shifts. Yeah. All right. Can we wrap up? Uh, yeah, so um, like Todd said there's tons of resources on that link there. So make sure you get your dashes in, made dash four dash, more dash resources. And um, all of those things related to the conversation on Made for More mobilization uh, is there. Also, we figured you want more disciple-making resources because you're at the Disciple-Making Forum. So um, we were a part of the very first forum um, connected to one of our exponential events. And we have all of those video resources with guys, Francis Chan, R- Dr. Robert Coleman, Jim Putman, Jeff Fenderstelt, more, Bill Hull. All right, guys. So uh, Enjoy
0: that's it for today's episode make sure to check out winfield bevin's ebook that we mentioned at the top of the episode by going to discipleship.org ebooks and look for multiplied disciples thanks for listening until next time